0: 1.3 million women in the united states enter menopause each year and a lot of those people including uh, several younger people who know that it's on the horizon which is menopause they don't know much about it so i met two women and interviewed them who are working on this international Women's day to break the stigma of women's health at midlife which is another way to say menopause. So let's, let's learn together about what they are working to do. So let's go ahead and do that. March 8th is International Women's Day. And this year, the theme for it is break the bias because there's so little information and so much stigma around women's health at midlife, which specifically is menopause and 1.3 million, women in the United States, they enter into menopause each year, but many people don't really know what to expect. That's half the population goes through this process and it's hardly talked about. That's why I'm bringing on Claire Gill. She's the founder of the National Menopause Foundation and Dr. Andrea Singer. She is an OBGYN and also on the Medical Advisory Council for the National Menopause Foundation, and they're joining me right now to talk about this very important topic. Thank you so much, Claire and Dr. Singer, for joining me today. So this question is for Ms. Gill, uh, focusing on the gender equality worldwide. Let's talk about why it's important to include menopause in this situation.
1: Yeah, so we're really very excited that International Women's Day is talking about breaking the bias, you know, and gender equality and how important that is. But one of the biggest stigmas is still around menopause and women's health at midlife. So I think it's really important that when we talk about gender equality and we talk about women's health, that we don't forget that uh, the importance of women's health does not end at our childbearing years. I mean, so much of our education and awareness programs are done rightfully so around what happens after puberty, and what we need to know as we go into our childbearing years and then parenting time, Um, but every woman will experience menopause. Every healthy woman, if we live that long, thankfully, we will get to that stage, and there's no education or awareness around it, and people aren't talking about it as much as we do about other areas of women's health. So really pleased to be here today and to raise menopause as an issue that we should be talking about when we think about International Women's Day and focusing on women's health.
0: And we'll dig into a little bit the reason why uh, it's not talked about as much in a moment, but I do wanna go to Dr. Andrea Singer really quick and ask her the next question. So Dr. Singer, can you please explain the difference between perimenopause, menopause and postmenopause?
2: Happy to explain the differences. I'm actually going to start with menopause because then I think the other terms are easier to explain. Menopause is a natural physiologic event. As Claire mentioned, if everyone lives long enough, women, that is we will all go through menopause. It's defined as the permanent cessation of menses or menstrual periods. It's actually a retrospective diagnosis. So that means that we don't know somebody's reached menopause until we look back and realize that they've gone for 12 consecutive months without having a period or a menstrual cycle. We can talk more about the implications, symptoms experienced, and all of that. Perimenopause is the period before that last period, which is actually the transition to menopause. Menstrual cycles may become less predictable. They may be somewhat irregular. In some cases, they can be quite erratic. And women may start to have some symptoms, Hot flashes, some vaginal dryness, but often those symptoms are somewhat intermittent. And that's sort of the lead up. And then it will become fairly obvious that postmenopause is the time period from that last period and beyond throughout the remainder of a woman's life. She will be in that postmenopausal period. Interesting, I think, to note that with the average life expectancy of women in the US today. That may mean that a woman spends a third or more of her life in a postmenopausal state or in an estrogen deficient state.
0: We're seeing a lot more news uh, lately about menopause recently, mostly from international sources, though. So, why is there still such a stigma, stigma around menopause? Why are we not openly talking about this?
1: Yeah, and it's a really good question. I, mean, I think there's a lot of different challenges when it comes to women's health in general, right? So there is a lack of attention and awareness around women and women's health overall, right? And there's so many you know, stories that we've seen in studies that have been done that show that, right? That women's experiences in healthcare are discounted uh, and that um, women don't talk about it because again, particularly at this stage of life, it means we're of a certain age. And so when we say the average age of a woman in menopause, a woman enters menopause is about 51. Now that's, you know, can be earlier for some women, it can be later for other women. It's really very unique, obviously, compared, you know, depending on the woman's overall health and well-being. But the average age is 51. So if you if are starting to exhibit menopausal symptoms and you're talking about it, you're pretty much telling everybody what your age is. And that's just not something that we've really comfortably done in our culture, right? So we have a, a real stigma around age. Ageism. And I think that's slowly changing. As we see, there's so many more articles about healthy aging and what that means and active aging. And I think we can probably credit the boomer generation with that because they, again, when they got to the point where life expectancy was increasing and they were very active and they're just like, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not done. There's so much that I'm looking forward to You know, post-menopausal for us that I think that that started to change. We have seen that in um, some of the European countries and even our colleagues in Canada. They're just much more open about talking about different life stages and things. Things that are happening. And they're taking a much more aggressive stance on um, protections for women throughout the lifespan, right? They have um, maternity leave and paternity leave in other countries. That's standard that we're still fighting for in this country, if you think about it, right? And again, the whole idea of a woman going back to work and needing accommodation for lactation after, you know, having her children, that's also much more progressive in other countries than it has been traditionally in the US. So I think we're making some small steps in progress to it. But what I'd like to see is that we address menopause in the same ways we've addressed some of the other you know, issues with women's health and that we make it a priority the way we've made other uh, areas of women's health. So there's a lot of work to be done, but I think we do have some very good examples of how it's been handled in other countries that we might be able to put into practice here and we're seeing more, even in pop culture, right? There's a lot more shows and and things addressing older women and addressing issues that older women have. Um, and um, not only are we talking about menopause, but again, we're also talking about a lot of the the health and lifestyle things that come postmenopausal that are really important for women to pay attention to.
0: So, still a lot of work to be done, but. The very first step for anything is talking about it. So starting the conversations, and that's That's what we're doing here now. What are the most common symptoms of menopause? And what are maybe the first telltale signs that uh, a woman might be starting this process?
2: The most common symptoms of menopause far and away are vasomotor symptoms. Those are the classic hot flashes or night sweats which is essentially a hot flash that happens during the night. If a woman has had a hot flash, she definitely knows it. It is that experience, it's a heat dissipation syndrome, right? And it's that experience of this overwhelming sensation of heat, often on the chest, neck and face, or in that area that can last for up to a few minutes, a minute to five minutes, sometimes followed by sweating, shivering, pills, Uh, sometimes anxiety and palpitations as well. And these can occur in varying frequency uh, and in many cases can be more moderate to severe, which is where they start to impact functioning uh, and become more bothersome. Up to 80% of women experience vasomotor symptoms at some point during the menopause. We talked a little bit before about sort of that perimenopausal transition. And so it's during that time period where menses may become irregular and women may start to experience some vasomotor symptoms, but they may have them for a number of weeks or a month or two. And then they may not have them because they're, you know, women will ovulate some cycles, not ovulate others. And with hormonal fluxes, there's not a steady. It's not as though once someone starts to experience symptoms, they stay without change, but there's variability. Um, and that can sometimes signal that something is changing, but it doesn't necessarily tell you when the last period will be. It's interesting to actually note that the duration of menopause and the median duration of vasomotor symptoms is a little over seven years, about 7.4 years, though very variable, but that duration often depends on when the first symptom onset occurs. So for women who have their onset in the perimenopause sort of prior to menopause or in the early menopausal period, their symptoms tend to last longer. For those who don't really start to have hot flashes or other vasomotor symptoms until after their last period, a little bit further in, they tend to be of a little bit shorter duration. But there is huge inter-individual variability, right? No two people are exactly alike. Don't want to forget to mention a few other things. Although vasomotor symptoms are what are the most common and what everybody thinks about, there are a number of other organ systems that can be affected. So, genitourinary syndrome of menopause, which can be experienced as vaginal dryness, sometimes pain with intercourse, what we sometimes refer to as vulvovaginal atrophy, that can start early and progress the further one goes into menopause, there are effects on other symptoms. So there can be changes in terms of cardiovascular risk, bone loss and an increased risk for fractures as one gets older, cognitive changes as well. And sometimes the presence of vasomotor symptoms can actually be an indicator or a biomarker for future chronic disease as in those systems um, that I just mentioned mood changes, sleep disturbances, you know the list goes on. So I think we can see very readily why this becomes a very important issue for women. Uh, it certainly can affect quality of life, social interactions, work interactions, uh, often at a time where women may be at the peak of their productivity, their relationships, uh, family life and certainly want to make sure that they seek care when it's needed.
0: If a woman believes she's starting to go through this uh, process, where can she go? What are some good resources? And it, is there anything that can be done to kind of um, help the woman through uh, through menopause. I'll
1: let Dr. Singer address some of the things that you should check in with your clinician about. But um, as far as information, um, I founded the National Menopause Foundation in 2019, believe it or not, when I realized there was no nonprofit. About menopause, I mean, if you know how many nonprofits there are in our country, it just seemed to me to be impossible that there was really not something already in existence. Um, and so I was really help, help, happy to bring that to you know to everyone. And you can find that at NationalMenopauseFoundation.org. There's also great clinical organizations, the North American Menopause Society, NAMS, is how we call it, is also um, tons of wonderful resources and information, both for clinicians and for patients, but primarily for clinicians to be able to know what their patients need. And again, getting that support at this time, as you said, it's really about talking about it, right? Being able to broach this subject with your, your partner, particularly if you're having symptoms that are related to you know uh, personal relationships, or with your clinician who can talk you through what are the options for me at this stage of life if I'm having symptoms that need to be addressed. Right. There are many women who you'll meet who say, Oh, I sailed through menopause and I didn't even notice. And that's fantastic, right? Again, everyone is different. But so many other women say, no, this was a really challenging time for me, and I really need a clinician who can help me address that. So I'll let Dr. Singer talk about some of those, those options.
2: I think you made a really important point, Claire, and that is that the education, the awareness needs to be on both the patient level but it also needs to be on the provider level uh, because there are many providers who either don't have the comfort level in terms of discussing menopause uh, treatment options. And I think what we find, and this has been prevalent in different surveys that have been done and in speaking to women, and I don't wanna call them patients necessarily, because again, this is a normal physiologic process, uh, but that many clinicians don't bring up the topic. So we need to empower women to be advocates for their own health and to seek knowledge or to bring up and ask questions if they're having symptoms, if they're not sure what to expect. And on the other hand, we really need to provide education to clinicians to make sure that they proactively ask because many women have this uh, understanding that, well, if this is a normal process, Uh, you know, everybody goes through it. I don't know that I should be doing anything about it. And they may be reluctant to bring up some of their concerns, especially when it comes to difficult topics like sexual health or relationship issues or mood changes. um, And there are many other aspects as well. So I think the education piece uh, is a dual-pronged approach is the first aspect. I would say that the field is evolving. So we have classically thought about The main change uh, or root cause for some of the symptoms that I mentioned, as well as organ system changes, being a decrease in estrogen. And as such, hormone therapy, estrogen or in women who have a uterus, estrogen and progestin combined uh, have been the mainstay of therapy, first line therapy and recommended by NAMS, as well as the American College of uh, Obstetrics and Gynecology. But there's a lot more that we're starting to learn. Some new neurons called candy neurons have been identified, which really speak to the fact that there's more that goes on just on an ovarian level, but a whole thermoregulatory center in the brain. And the more we learn about this, the more we may be able to help with new strategies and medications. There are behavioral techniques, non-pharmacologic strategies, The point is that there are many things that can be done. How we approach this uh, should be based on the individual, not only her background, other concomitant medical problems, her goals and desires, and the severity of the symptoms with which she comes to the provider.
0: What are some of your goals in terms of getting this more Conversation more into the mainstream, and either of you can take this question. The
1: fact that there's a place where women can go to anonymously get scientifically based information about the symptoms, um, articles about how these symptoms are addressed, what other women are experiencing, peer groups that they can talk with, and say, "Oh my gosh, this is happening to me. Is that happening to you too?" All of those things, I think, will will really help to normalize it. We're also trying to work at the federal level to talk about why menopause should be part of the ongoing care of women's and women's health and how do we address that as a public health you know issue. Again, when half the population is going to be experiencing this, it should be a priority. And it's really, as Dr. Singer had mentioned earlier, it's really up to women to advocate. our own health. That's how things like the um, Health and Human Services and uh, the CDC and the FDA, all of them have fantastic information about menopause. If you go check out their website, you can find it. But it's not a priority because, again, it's what's being advocated for in Congress to address women's health. So if we want it to be a bigger part of the research that's being done into women's health. If we want it to be more of a public facing campaign about what women need to know about menopause in this stage of life and post-menopause, then we need to make it happen. And so I'm really looking forward to sort of working with both our clinician experts and um, empowering women to talk about this a little bit more and then to do something about it so that our care and well-being is addressed at every stage of life.
2: And I think what I would add to that as an educator and someone who teaches, uh, works at an academic medical center and teaches in the medical school as well as working with residents, it really starts uh, early, right? In terms of medical school education, education during residency, and not just with OBGYN providers, although that's clearly important because they are women's health providers, but there are many specialties that touch women and women's health throughout their life and over the course of a lifespan. And so really empowering providers as well to feel comfortable to have the baseline knowledge they need, to stay on top of evolving information uh, and, and creating that language as Claire said, on both sides to empower everyone to be able to sort of ask the right questions and be proactive and bring the topic up. At least one has then opened the door. Someone's not having problems or doesn't feel comfortable discussing it at a particular visit. They'll remember the next time that, oh, when I was in the office, my provider asked me before if I was having any issues. Maybe this is a space where I can discuss some of those things.
0: Is there anything else you would like to add that I haven't asked you that you think that people should know?
1: There's so much that people need to know. Sometimes it's a little bit overwhelming, right? Particularly when I talk with women and, and we're talking about this stage of life and how much how much we don't know, right? About what's normal, what's not, you know, when should we seek care, when should we not? And we should also start preparing younger generations for this, right? If, it, if we're talking about it at our generation now, well, that's terrific. And then how do we prepare the next generation? So I often use the personal example of my daughter is 10. I think she knew more about menopause than she did about puberty because I was taught talking about the foundation at home, but we've normalized that conversation where she knows what happens during puberty, right? Then she's learning like where babies come from. And then she also knows, oh, and then that part of life ends. And this is what happens to the body. Then we can normalize it like that. And so I hope that's how that conversation evolves, that it really is. It's just an amazing stage and amazing thing that the women's bodies go through. I would just say
2: that, and this is true in most aspects of medicine, right? No two individuals are exactly alike and care needs to be individualized. And so having having an open dialogue, being able to have that exchange and then come up with a plan. And when I say management or treatment plan, that doesn't necessarily imply medications, it might. There are many aspects and ways to manage symptoms, to be proactive in terms of screening for disease, uh, to look at risk factors. The goal being we want women to live healthy, long, um, productive lives and to have good quality of life. And I think working as a team, so a care team, uh, both you know, client or patient, whatever terminology one prefers to use, uh, as well as providers, but all working together I think it gives us better outcomes uh, and better satisfaction.
0: Again, I want to thank Claire Gill for joining us, as well as Dr. Andrea Singer for working to break the stigma, talking about healthy aging specifically when it comes to menopause for women on this International Women's Day. So again, thank you so much for joining us on Local News Live. All right, that was my interview with those two women who are working nonstop to break the stigma around women's health at midlife, which in other words means menopause. And you know, I learned a lot from them and I hope you did too, but just because At the end of the day, International Women's Day will be over doesn't mean that we're going to stop highlighting issues that affect women every single day. All week long here on Local News Live, we'll be featuring women founders and other issues that affect women, not just in the United States, but across the world.